The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. It's a delight to have all of you here. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the thoughts, the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing, acceptable to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Part of keeping Advent is simply paying attention. And several Sundays ago, on the first Sunday of Advent, we heard the Apostle Paul say, now is the time to wake up, to wake up spiritually and to pay attention to what's happening in your heart and your life and the world around you, to no longer be lulled into a spiritual slumber by the secular sensibilities that insist on a holiday mood of silliness. Kids, do you remember the character Puddle Glum in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia? He's in book four. It's the silver chair. And, and Puddle Glum is a marsh wiggle, which is a silly sounding name. And his appearance makes you think that he too is a silly character because he's a weedy-like character, very gangly and long with a green-tinted skin, and his arms are disproportionate to his body being too long for his body. He has a long face also, and he has this pointed nose and big ears, so he looks rather silly, like a frog, with webbed feet like a frog as well. And so he looks silly, but he's actually a serious character, sometimes too serious, in fact, even as his name Puddle Glum sounds It sounds as though that mood when you step into a puddle and it soaks your feet, making you feel glum. So puddle glum. He's pessimistic. He has this ominous outlook on everything, always having this worst case scenario before him. But he's also very brave and awake and always paying attention to things that other people overlook or ignore. So when the children and and he find themselves in the underworld, which is ruled by this wicked witch, and they're being lulled, excuse me, to sleep by this music that she's playing, this fire that she's burning. There's this magic spell that's enchanting them 
leading them to disbelieve and to, and to not consider that Aslan and the real world above them is actually real. Puddleglum then stomps out the magic fire with his webbed feet and burns them badly, but he wakes the children up and he breaks the witch's spell over them. And that's Advent. Advent's the time to wake up from the spiritual slumber that you've been in and to end whatever spell that's been over you and to start paying attention and dealing with the real world serious things in your life that need change because change is coming. That is the Advent message. And the liturgical color of Advent really says everything that we need to know. It's deep royal blue. It's a royal blue because the coming one is a king. And it's a deep blue, a dark blue, because that's the color of the night sky at its deepest, darkest moment, where when it's been the darkest, the longest, but it's right before the dawn begins to break, representing that the deepest, darkest part of the night is now about to end. So Advent has this serious mood, an ominous mood even. But today, if you're paying attention, you notice there's a shift. Even in our Old Testament and our Psalm reading, both, they both speak about joy. And the candle that we lit today is not a dark blue candle, but a pink candle, a color that represents joy. In fact, some churches have pastors wear pink stoles. That's where my liturgical sensibilities end. So we're not going to go that far. But that's the point that today's emphasis is not just the reality of darkness, but joy in the midst of the darkness. Now, how can those who walk in darkness and dwell in a land of deep darkness, as Isaiah put it, how can they rejoice? And why should they rejoice? So three points this morning. The position, number one, the expectation, and then finally the promise. First of all, the position. We find John in a different position today than we found him last week. Our gospel reading is here from Matthew chapter 11. Last week, we found John in Matthew 2. Nine chapters later, he's in prison. Back in Matthew chapter two, he was in the desert. And in fact, that's the only two places we ever find John the Baptist in the scriptures, either in the desert or in prison. And in the desert, he was speaking and acting with authority and with power over all the authorities and the powers of Israel and therefore also of the world. But here this week, everything's flipped. His world has been turned upside down. And now the authorities and the powers have reasserted themselves and John is facing death. And he's confused by that. He's asking questions in verse three, as opposed to doing what he was doing back in Matthew chapter two, which was making prophetic statements. And last week I ended my sermon referring to the movie, The Princess Bride. If you were here, you might remember. And, and especially that scene when Wesley finds himself in the pit of despair. And it's a funny scene. If you've seen that movie, the jailer hacks out the name pit of despair, and then he clears his throat and he says very clearly, don't even think about trying to escape. The chains are too thick. And don't dream about being rescued because only the prince, the count, and me know the way in and out. And then he tells Wesley that he will die there. And you watch that movie and you laugh because in part we understand what he's talking about. It's an uncomfortable laughter because we all know the pit of despair and what it's like to be there. And some of you are right there now in your own life, whatever the circumstances might be that you find yourself in, whether it's in your marriage or in your work, or in that vice that you just can't shake, or in those, those habits and those ways of one of your children that they can't escape and you can't rescue them. You don't know the way in or out and neither do they. That is John this week in Matthew 11. He's moved from the heights of notoriety and popularity. Remember, everyone in all Jerusalem was coming out to see him. 
everyone in all the Jordan and the region around the Jordan, they were all coming out to him. Now nobody's coming to him except his most loyal followers. And pretty soon he will die all alone. And he will not be mostly dead like Wesley and the Princess Bride. He will be dead, dead, decapitated dead, having his head cut off as a reward to Herod's stepdaughter for a pornographic dance at a drunken party. That's the end of John's life. So why is John here? Maybe you've asked yourself that question. Why am I here? How did I get here? How did I get to this place in my life? It's no place that John ever imagined that he would be among one of those spoken in our call to worship and elsewhere throughout the Bible. Those, those categorical sufferers, the oppressed, the hungry, the blind, the bowed down, the foreigner, the wanderer, the orphan, the widow. He's a prisoner. Now one of the crushed and vulnerable of the world. So what do you do when you become one of those? And why is John now one of those? In large part, he is one of those because of what he said back in Matthew chapter two. Do you remember what he said? You brood of vipers to the powers of Israel. This is what Fleming Rutledge says. She says, John's whole purpose is to announce the beginning of their end. John's appearance on the banks of the Jordan means that the kingdom of God has begun and that all the wickedness of this world is doomed. The Lord of the universe is about to step on the stage of world history and reverse its course. The next person to appear will be God and it will be the first day of the age to come. You hear what she's saying? She's saying he's in prison because, and he's about to die because the powers of this world who oppose the rule of God, he came to them and said, their time is coming to an end and they will soon be cast down by God. He says this to the world and the world responds. And I wonder how it is that you see the world. How do you see the world? Apostle Paul, at the beginning of the book of Galatians, calls our world this present evil age. It's an age in which horrors routinely take place. I'm sure you've heard about and probably followed the story of the little girl from North Texas who was abducted by a FedEx driver and then killed senselessly. Then there's the story from the past month or so of the UVA football players who were shot by a former teammate on a school bus. Then there's the story of the unsolved murders of four college students at the University of Ohio, or no, Ohio, Idaho. All of them killed in their beds while they slept. Law enforcement still has no leads. And then there's this acclaimed French film that I often think of at this time of the year. It's called Of Gods and Men. It was released 10, 12 years ago now. It's about Catholic monks living in a small monastery in the Atlas Mountains based on this true story of what happened in 1996 in Algeria. What happened was Islamic terrorists arrived and began terrorizing the small Muslim community that these monks were serving and, and, and living among. And the police and the military alike came to the monks and said, you all need to leave. You need to flee. But they refused and they continued to pray there to tend their crops and to keep their bees and to give medical care to all of the villagers, even after they knew that they would all die. And they did die. They were all killed, with the exception of two who hid in the mountains and then escaped to tell the story. And Fleming Rutledge, she says that those monks and Christians like them are like John the Baptist, because they paid the price for holding their positions on the frontier where the goodness of God's coming age opposes the rulers of this present evil age. They stayed where they were in their positions, despite the difficulty and despite the cost, in order to bear witness to the one that John was bearing witness to, the coming one that John gave his entire life to bear witness to. And that means that Advent is a time for us 
for you and for me to reflect on our own positions. In other words, where have we been placed by God to stand in this present evil age on the knife's edge between the the evil age that is about to end and the age of the coming of Christ that has come and will someday come in full? Where do we stand on this divide? Where do you stand? And are you holding your position despite the costs, despite the losses that it will incur? For example, high school students, college students, single adults, you've heard me say often that we live in a pornographic age, as I've quoted to you before, Carl Truman, who says the pornification of culture inevitably leads to the trivialization of sex. And that is why your peers make fun of you and speak about you as odd and bizarre for seeking to faithfully maintain your Christian ethics regarding sex and and refraining from it until marriage, because you, you are odd and bizarre to them. Because they've taken something that's precious and beautiful and powerful, and they've trivialized it. And by your refusal to trivialize it, you stand and you hold your position on that frontier between the end of the old age and the beginning of the new one. That is your position. Well, for some of you married couples, you've been struggling in your marriages for a long time, and all of your secular friends, they ask you, why are you still in this marriage? Why don't you just end it? Why don't you walk away and get happy? Life is too short for you to not be happy, but you don't. You don't walk away. You continue to do what we talked about last week, which is, which is to repent, to say you're sorry, and to bear fruit in keeping with those words of repentance. And that is your position on the frontier in between the end of the old age and the beginning of the new one in Christ. And also those of you who show up week after week to faithfully serve the side-by-side kids who come to our campus every day after school, And you help them, you help them with their schoolwork, you feed them, you teach them about Jesus. And these are children whose parents are often working multiple jobs. Usually they're immigrants who have fled another country because of the oppressive circumstances there. And these kids, they don't have the resources or the support that many of us take for granted. And you're volunteering with them and side-by-side kids or your work with their parents in our ESL program, that is your position. It is your position in the battle between the ages, the present evil yet ending age in the age of the kingdom of God in Christ. And no, it's not as dramatic as monks being murdered in the Atlas Mountains by terrorists. But the Advent battle requires many positions on many fronts. And if you are a Christian, you have a position. So what is your position that God has given you to hold despite the cost? And are you holding it? And it leads us to point two, the expectation Because the only cure for an age like ours filled with stories like I just mentioned is an intervention by God. But what is it like when God intervenes? Our text here in Matthew 11 tells us, look at verse three. John is confused here because he's taken a stand. He's told everyone that Jesus is the Messiah and and his expectation for what the Messiah would do had definite political overtones that have not been met. He expected Jesus to overthrow all of those in power, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans even, and to do it immediately. And Jesus doesn't do it. And John winds up in prison as opposed to to the palace with Jesus. And he's wondering what in the world is going on. So he asks his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? And so Jesus responds back in verses four and five, doing what Jesus often does, which is to quote the Old Testament and to tell John, to remind John what the Old Testament says the Messiah would do which is to care for the suffering and to heal the sick 
and restore their lives, that the Messiah, he reminds them, would bring about a great reversal. And Jesus was doing just that. He was causing a great disruption. It just wasn't the disruption and it wasn't the reversal that John was expecting and hoping for, which is why Jesus in verse six has to say to him, blessed is everyone who is not offended by me. He has to say that to John because John at this point is offended by Jesus. And let's be honest. So too are some of you at this point because of what or is what is not happening in your life. That Jesus isn't doing his messianic work the way that you want or that you expected either. You're offended. The word offended in Greek is literally scandalon. We get our English word scandalous from it. Literally, it means a rock of stumbling. It's something you trip over. Remember, this is the ancient Near East. No lighted pathways to walk by at night. And so imagine a, a dark path and a large rock on a path. Something to trip over can do some real damage. And so Jesus is saying, blessed is everyone who's not tripped up by who I really am. Not by their imaginations of who I am, but by who I really am. And not scandalized by who I really am. Because Jesus always brings disruption. But when it comes, when that disruption hits our lives, will it scandalize us? It's Flannery O'Connor month here at All Saints, if you haven't noticed. And I was thinking this week, can you imagine if John the Baptist and Flannery O'Connor somehow had a baby? That baby would be an Advent superhero and probably super weird too. But here's another one of her short stories called A Good Man is Hard to Find. In my opinion, it's one of her best. It's a story of a family on a road trip. Now, what could ever go wrong on a family road trip? And they're traveling from Georgia to Florida and they take their grandmother with them. And the grandmother is a nightmare of a person. And she is self-righteous and bossy and pretentious. She insists on wearing this ridiculous, ostentatious hat because she imagines that they have a wreck and she dies in the wreck. At least when they find her dead body, she'll have that hat and they'll see that hat and know that she's a fine and respectable woman. And in fact, they do get into an accident, but it's caused by the grandmother because she smuggles her cat into the car and the cat gets loose and causes the accident. And then there's this, this escaped convict known as the misfit. And, they, and she... They are found by this man. And the climactic moment of the story comes when the misfit, this notorious murderous criminal, points his gun at the grandma, this respectable woman that spent her entire life criticizing everyone and basking in her own supposed goodness and respectability. And when the misfit points his gun at her chest, she has this moment of revelation and clarity. And she sees her son in the misfit. And she realizes that her own son and the misfit aren't that different. And then she has this other moment of clarity. She, she begins, she, she ceases to talk for the first time in the story, finally shuts her mouth and she drops her hat, this symbol of respectability. And she sees in the misfit that not only is he more like her son than she ever imagined, but that the misfit is more like her than she ever imagined. And then the misfit puts three bullets in her chest and kills her saying that she would have been a good woman if there had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. Now, what's the point? I have no idea. It's just a really great story. <laughs> but actually, here's the point. Point is, at some point, Jesus has to shoot us all in the chest. And that's what verse 12 is about. When Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. He is saying that he and his kingdom are violently opposed by this broken and fallen world, but also by our own broken and fallen sinful hearts. 
And because of that, God's grace and his kingdom can't come easily or softly. That redemption can't come without serious disruption. Our problem is that that's what we want. We want grace without any violence. We want grace without any disruption. We want God to fit in easily and nicely to our own life and our own expectations as we have set them, usually according to the privileges and the prerogatives of this world and the priorities of this world. So we don't want to change or to be changed. And Jesus won't come like that. His kingdom won't come easily or softly like a reed shaken by the wind, as he says in verse 7. He cannot come like that. He can't not oppose and disrupt what's wrong and broken in this world or what's wrong and broken within us. So when God comes near you and begins to work in your life and your heart, expect disruption. Expect difficulty. Expect your expectations for him to not be met but for those to be reset according to who he really is and all of your claims upon him to fall away and to fail. Expect that. Now, where's the joy in that though? Some of you may be wondering, where's the joy in that? Point three, the promise. The joy is in the list. The list of sufferers in Psalm 146, our call to worship. The imprisoned, the blind, the bowed down, the homeless or the wandering, the widow and the fatherless. For it's here in our list from our gospel reading, the blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, the dead, the poor. The joy is in the list. In fact, the joy is for the list. It's for those on those lists because Jesus didn't simply come to them in their suffering. He came to bear their suffering, to lift their suffering off of them and to place it on his own shoulders, which he himself bore as he carried his cross. And it was on the cross that Jesus himself was imprisoned and also blinded, blinded by his own pain and suffering, blinded by his love for you and for me. He was willingly bowed down there and crushed beneath the weight of our sin and our suffering. He was also abandoned by God the Father on the cross all alone, like a widow, like an orphan. And what that means is that Jesus knows your position. He knows where you are. As he says in the book of Revelation, I know where you live. Because he entered this world, this darkness, and he came into this world and this darkness to judge it and to suffer its fullest curse to the fullest extent and to extinguish all of its power by exhausting its strength upon himself. And that means that the darkness in which you sit now died with Jesus. Its rule was broken by him at the cross, and someday its effect will be fully and completely wiped away with all those who choose to remain with the darkness and in the darkness and in their opposition to God and to his grace, wiped away fully and completely with the world finally, fully and completely reset and set to right. So you will not suffer or struggle or subsist forever. Someday your suffering will end. That is the promise of this Sunday. That is the message of Advent. And there is joy for that in you. The joy of Advent is for the sufferers of this world. And the warnings of Advent are for those who cause the suffering. So if you struggle and if you suffer, if sadness now holds you, today is the day for you to rejoice. Because the night of this dark world is far gone and the day of the kingdom of God is at hand. So rejoice. And until Jesus comes, we have to do two things in order to fully embrace everything that we're saying this morning. And that is, according to James, we have to be patient. 
number one. And then according to Isaiah, we must strengthen the weak hands. Four different times, James mentions patience. And here's where I close. Friends, patience must be practiced. Patience doesn't come naturally to us, to people like us. We have to choose in faith to not speak and to not act and to not leave, but simply to wait. And waiting is so very, very difficult for us, living as we do in a frenetic city and in an overreactive activist culture. You all know this, but every time someone does something, we feel like we have to respond. We have to say something. If something happens culturally, companies, organizations, public figures, they have to put out some sort of statement. They have to tweet something. They have to say something. If something happens, they have to respond or they think that they're going to be complicit or they're going to be said to be burying their head in the sand. And that approach, it trickles down to every part of our life and to all of our relationships, into how we parent, into how we do friendships, into our beliefs, into our morals. And so we're always swinging back and forth, always acting and reacting back and forth and never still. But the scriptures say, they call for us to be still. Psalm 37, which is an Advent Psalm, if there was one, says, be still before the Lord. The only way that we're ever going to be still is if we are before the Lord. If we're not before the Lord, setting our hearts before the Lord, reading the scriptures, in prayer, coming to worship, if we're not before the Lord, we will be before something else. We'll set ourselves before something else. We'll focus on it. We'll fixate on it. And we'll never be still. The only way to be still in this world is to be before the Lord. So be still. And your eyes, if you are, if you're still, your eyes will be open to the weak hands and to the feeble needs around you. If you're not still, you'll never notice them. You'll never see them. So two of the four things that I mentioned to you about how to practice Advent, reading the scriptures and praying with other people and spending time with someone who's suffering, those two are inextricable. God's word and prayer leads you to the suffering and the suffering will lead you to God's word and to prayer. And in the confluence between the two, you will find joy. In the confluence between the two, you'll find joy. You'll know it. In the most poignant and powerful scene of that movie that I mentioned earlier of gods and men, the monks, these brothers, they play Swan Lake on a, on a record player. And they open two bottles of wine to share. And the arrangement of the tables that they sit around is reminiscent of the Last Supper. And as they listen to this music and as they share this wine around the table, they each commit, without words, but they each commit to staying and holding their position in the struggle around them. They commit to remaining with those who are suffering and to strengthen the weak hands and to strengthen the feeble needs. And in their faces, as the camera goes from each one to the next, there's no fear that's seen, nor regret or sadness. All of their looks are sober as they contemplate their own deaths, but joy shines forth from their faces. And all of them smile. Some of them even laugh. Somehow, those men know joy in the darkness. And they know it because of a communion. One with one another, yes, but also ultimately with Jesus himself and his joy. The very joy that the writer of Hebrews said was how he endured the cross. That Jesus for the joy set before him endured the cross. That very same joy is available to you today. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would be people of joy. And we would be people who know it by your grace. That we would, we would know the fullness of life that you have given to us. Really what our prayer is, Heavenly Father, is that you would restore unto us the joy of our salvation. That you would sustain us with a willing spirit that you would do so in Jesus' name. Amen.